Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, You can find uh, our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can also search for and subscribe to our channel there. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes and uh, subscribe to the feed there from your favorite uh, podcast program. Uh, If you want to send me an email, uh, you can do so by dropping me a line at jason at logicalbelief.org. Go ahead and send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback and your uh, words of encouragement there. Uh, Just be aware, um, if you do send me an email, uh, I may read it on the air. So um, today, uh, we have uh, just wrapped up on our series on uh, the doctrines of grace. And uh, so I would encourage uh, those of you guys that um, have not listened to that series to go back and and watch that series. It's on a uh, playlist on uh, the YouTube page. Uh, You can also find it uh, by clicking on podcast in the top menu of the uh, the website. You can go look at past episodes and you can go ahead and see those. If you are going to watch that series, I encourage you to do so from the beginning. Um, but uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to jump back uh, into something that we kind of started off uh, this particular uh, podcast with is uh, a discussion of um, presuppositional apologetics. And specifically today, we're going to discuss the transcendental argument uh, for the existence of God. So um, uh, what... Uh, what I would encourage you to do before maybe jumping into this particular episode is if you've never heard of presuppositional apologetics, I would encourage you to probably listen to the very first episode of the podcast uh, before continuing on on this particular one uh, so that you have a little bit more of a foundation of some of the things that uh, we're discussing here. But if you do have uh, familiarity with uh, presuppositionalism already, Uh, you can go ahead and just join us um, on this uh, episode. And we're going to discuss a particular aspect of presuppositionalism, and specifically the TAG argument, or also known as the um, transcendental argument for the existence of God. So um, what we're going to do here is I'm going to uh, transition here so that you can see um, a presentation uh, that I put together uh, just this morning, actually. I just threw this together before the the podcast, and so I hoped uh, that this turns out all right. Um, but uh, I threw this together um, to put together a, pre- a presentation so that uh, some of these more difficult concepts that um, that uh, maybe we're, we're having trouble grasping, uh, that we can go ahead and wrap our minds around it and really realize the absolute... Um, rock-solid platinum argument presuppositionalism is and the transcendental argument specifically is uh, how it how it literally destroys the atheistic worldview Um, presuppositionalism as a as a fully orbed uh, apologetic methodology uh, addresses many more worldviews than just atheism but the tag argument aspect of presuppositionalism does directly address um, atheistic perspectives. So um, if you have had some experience and some exposure to presuppositional apologetics, uh, just go ahead and uh, just continue following along with us as we go through this. So um, what I wanted to do before we get into uh, the details of the argument themselves to make sure that I define terms um, as we go along here. So the first thing that if you're not familiar even maybe with the term transcendental, if you are familiar with presuppositional apologetics, you would definitely have familiarity with this term. But I want to go ahead and make sure that this term is defined so that we uh, understand it and uh, recognize uh, what transcendentals are and what transcendentalism is. So um, I grabbed uh, some of these. I made some slight modifications to them, but I grabbed these from dictionary.com. And uh, uh, transcendental is beyond the contingent and accidental in human experience, but not beyond all human knowledge. Um, it's It's abstract, it's metaphysical, and it's conceptual. 
Um, that's what transcendental uh, means. Uh, being beyond the ordinary or common experience, thought or belief. And this is the favorite definition um, that I have, which more uh, applies to what we are discussing today. And that is categories that have universal application as being one true um, or good. And so the main thing I want you to understand with the term transcendental is we're talking about things that are conceptual in nature, immaterial in nature, that have metaphysical aspects to them, meaning that they're not, they're not part of the material universe. It, it's not something that ex, extends into space and time, but yet it has truth value, it has universality to it, and it has a common acceptance among all human beings as as being true. So things that would have transcendental value or a transcendental metaphysical nature would be things like love, for example. You know, you can't I can't find a bucket of love. I can't I can't weigh love um, with a scale. I can't measure love with a pair of calipers. Um, and I can't put love under a microscope, but yet we all recognize that there is such a thing as love. So there's truth value to it. And it does have, so it has a transcendental aspect to it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about philosophical transcendental type of entities. Um, and uh, we'll get into uh, many different ones. Justice, for example, would be a, a transcendental. You can't find a bucket of justice. I can't stub my toe on a block of justice. But I do recognize what justice is, and I recognize when something is not just, and I recognize when something is just. Um, the same way with uh, uh, morality. Morality or ethics um, are, are transcendental in nature. Uh, the laws of logic are transcendental in nature. Um, consciousness itself has a transcendental aspect to it. So that is kind of the basis I want to make sure that you guys understand what we're talking about when we're talking about in the category of transcendental universal truths. Uh, so what we're going to do in order to get into the tag argument is we're just going to get into some basic logic, uh, discussion of how logic works, uh, some logical argumentation, and uh, and then show the tag argument. So the first thing here is the tag argument and the way that I formulate it is, is in a form of a syllogism. And a syllogism is a form of reasoning in which a conclusion is drawn from two given or assumed premises or uh, premises or propositions, each of which shares a term with the conclusion and shares a common term not present in the conclusion, and I'll demonstrate that here. So if we notice here, we have premise one, all A is B. We have premise two, which is our minor premise. Uh, C is A, and then we have our conclusion, therefore C is B. Now notice here that the conclusion, here it, it says here, each of which shares a term with the conclusion. So notice that in the conclusion here, I have C, therefore C is B. Notice how uh, in the minor premise I have C, and notice how I have in my major premise I have B. But notice also that there is a common term between both of them, so both of them carry a common term which is A, which is not present in the conclusion. So that's a classical standard syllogism. And I'll give you an example of one. Uh, all men are mortal. Uh, Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, notice here that we have the, um, the uh, term A here, which is, is men in this case and man. Um, notice how A is not in the conclusion. But Socrates and mortal which is B in the major premise. So mortal is B in the major premise, and Socrates in the minor premise is C. So therefore, C is B. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. And we would all agree with that. We would all agree with premise one, all men are mortal. We've never seen men that didn't die. All men die. 
Um, and Socrates is a man. If we agree with the second minor premise that Socrates is a man, then we would therefore have to conclude that Socrates is mortal. Okay? Well, I'm going to show you the logical syllogism that I use within the transcendental argument for the existence of God. So, my major premise in um, the particular syllogism that I'm using here is A is necessary for B. B exists, is my minor premise. Therefore, A exists. That is my conclusion. So, here is uh, this particular argument um, laid out. A pilot is necessary for an airplane to fly. So, notice here I have um, a pilot is A, is necessary for B, for an airplane to fly. The airplane is flying, so B exists, B is true, is my minor premise. Therefore, A exists, therefore there is a pilot. So if we agree that premise one is, is true, a pilot is necessary for a plane to fly, we affirm uh, B, the airplane is flying, Therefore, there is a pilot. So this is the format in which I'm going to place my transcendental argument. Now, here could be several attacks that you could do against this argument. You could either attack premise 1 or premise 2. If, if either premise 1 or premise 2 is false, therefore the conclusion then does not logically follow. So in order to argue against this particular uh, syllogism, a pilot is necessary for for an airplane to fly, the airplane is flying, therefore there is a pilot. In order to argue against this, I would have to dispute premise one and premise two, the major and minor premise, I would have to dispute them, and if I invalidate any one of them, then my conclusion, therefore, is not true. So, um, a way that this could be attacked is premise one is a pilot is necessary for an airplane to fly. So somebody could say, well, you know, there's unmanned airplanes, okay? Well, my response to that would be, well, unmanned airplanes still have a pilot on the ground. So that doesn't invalidate premise one. A pilot is necessary for an airplane to fly. They could say, well, there are airplanes flown by computers. Okay. Well, the response to that is the computer created by a human is the pilot. So it still has a pilot, even if it's a computer. And um, the computer itself was still created by a human being. So the human being would ultimately still be the pilot. But um, but the computer is the one who is actually piloting the craft, so it still has a pilot. So these particular attacks, now maybe there's other attacks against this particular premise, but these are just two that I gave as an example, and here are the disputations against them. So premise one so far has withstood all the attacks, so premise one stands. The airplane is flying is my second premise, okay? The person may say, well, the airplane is not flying, okay? My response is simply look up. There it is. You can see it flying. Okay. So if you actually see the airplane flying and you agree that premise one is true and premise two, the minor premise, is true, the conclusion has to logically follow that a pilot exists. Okay. So here's the first formulation that I have of the tag argument. And this is that the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. That is my major premise. The Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. Now, from a presuppositional uh, apologetic standpoint, we recognize that all worldviews have to assume certain things to be true. Within the presuppositional position, we believe that we have to assume the existence of God. The, we have to assume that he has spoken within his creation in the words of the Bible. And that particular assumption and that particular presupposition justifies all the different transcendentals that we all as human beings acknowledge and believe in and trust in in order to exist within our reality. And so, when I say that the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge, 
the Christian God is my presupposition. And I say that it is necessary to justify knowledge. And so my challenge then would be for someone else to provide a justification other than the Christian God to justify knowledge. And and to try to do so from the atheistic perspective specifically. Because in this case we're actually addressing atheism. So can the atheist from his worldview challenge premise one? So my premise is, premise one, is the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. So my minor premise here is people have knowledge. People do have knowledge. So therefore, the conclusion does logically follow that God does exist. Um, so here is a second formulation of this particular argument. You could say omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge. Okay. Um, you can either accept or deny this particular claim, but that is a claim that we're making here with premise one. And if uh, you say that knowledge can be justified without an omniscience, then my challenge would be is provide that particular justification. People, once again, have knowledge. Therefore, there is omniscience. So if there is, if omniscience exists, um, um, well, we say that omniscience does exist and it is necessary that it exists in order to justify the fact that we have knowledge. People do have knowledge, therefore there is omniscience. Okay, well, let's look at the way these particular arguments could be attacked. The first one is the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. So my challenge would be is challenge premise one. We can, it can be attacked possibly, somebody can say, well, we can, we can know things without God. I know things and I don't believe in God, okay? Well, my response to that would be, well, that's a red herring because that's not my argument. The argument is not that belief in God has to be claimed in order to justify knowledge. The actual argument is that the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. It's not whether you believe in the Christian God or not. It is the argument is is that the Christian God is actually necessary to justify knowledge. Another attack could be, well, we can know things without God. After all, I know things and there is no God. Well, this is actually begging the question. The answer assumes that God does not exist. How do you justify knowing things without omniscience, which goes to the second formulation of the same argument. So it could also be attacked from the argument that people have knowledge. People will say that people don't know anything. Uh, we can't know anything for certain. Well, the response to that would be that's a self-refuting statement. That's a self-contradictory statement. How then do you know that people don't know anything if we can't know anything? And so, premise one and premise two, if there are no logical arguments against them, they stand as true, and therefore the conclusion does follow that God exists. Now, somebody could attack this argument and say that your conclusion is assumed in your premise one. And that is actually correct. That is right. I am assuming that the Christian God exists, and therefore... He does justify knowledge, uh, and so therefore I do conclude that the Christian God does exist. We are not saying that um, ultimate authorities and ultimate a priori assumptions are not circular in nature. We, we do believe that, and we actually uh, acknowledge that. The, the, reason, the argument is not whether or not that our ultimate authority and our ultimate assumptions are not circular in nature. That is not, that is not something that we're arguing against. What we as Christians are saying that hold to presuppositional apologetics is we are saying that that particular assumption is required in order to justify knowledge. If you don't assume that to be true, then you can't provide any foundation for knowing anything whatsoever. You cannot justify human knowledge within the human experience. 
Let's go to uh, the second formulation of the tag argument when it comes to um, justifying knowledge. Um, that particular argument said omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge. Now, an atheist could attack this and say, we can know things to be true without omniscience. My response to that would be then, in the knowledge that you do not possess, so if, if we are saying, if the atheist's response to this is that we can actually justify that we have knowledge, we can actually say that we have things that are true beliefs, and we can justify them in order to be true, and we can do so without omniscience, then this would be my response to that. In the knowledge that you do not possess, because you're not omniscient, you, omniscient, you don't know everything, would it be possible for there to be knowledge, uh, a fact out there that contradicts what you think you know to be true? The answer to this necessarily has to be yes. Um, if 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 you don't know what you don't know, then to say that, to answer this uh, as no, you would be claiming to actually know what exists in the knowledge that you don't know, which is self-refuting and self-contradictory. So the only option is to answer yes on this or else to give a self-refuting answer. Um, it, would, it would claim to know what you don't know is the only other option. So it's either absurdity or you have to answer yes on this question. So in the knowledge that you do not possess, would it be possible for there to be knowledge that contradicts what you think you know to be true? So you by necessity have to answer this as yes or refute yourself. The only way to have certain knowledge is to know everything. And that's the only way to have certainty because if we don't know everything, the one thing that we may not know may be what contradicts the particular knowledge claim we're making now. And to say that that, that particular knowledge or that fact that we don't know um, cannot contradict the knowledge claim that we're making now is to claim that we actually know what that fact is or actually have at least enough knowledge of it to know that it cannot contradict this. Um, and so it's self-refuting again in nature. So knowledge is is only true knowledge if it is in fact true. <laughs> That's a given, but knowledge is only true knowledge if it is in fact true. If something does contradict it, then it is no longer knowledge. You, you know, somebody may think they know something to be true, and they may think they possess knowledge, but if that particular knowledge is in fact not true, they don't really have knowledge. They don't really know it. Um, if you can, if you cannot know if there is something that contradicts a knowledge claim, then you cannot know if it is true knowledge. So what is left here, if we, if we cannot acknowledge that omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge, then we are left with not knowing um, if any of our knowledge is actually true, any of our knowledge claims, things that we claim to be true, actually have truth value. We have no way of justifying that. And that is what the atheist worldview leads to. It leads to complete um, uh, nihilism. It leads to complete solipsism. There's no, they can't justify anything at all, and they can't even justify their claim that they can't know anything at all. Um there's, they are just in a complete self-refuting bundle walk, uh, walking ball of contradictions. Um, that's all that's left to them. And so going back to, let me actually back up here to the arguments for tag here. So the Christian God is necessary to justify knowledge. People have knowledge, therefore God exists. And omniscience is necessary to justify knowledge. People have knowledge, therefore there is omniscience. So we as Christians and the Bible claims that God has omniscience, that God knows all things. Um, so here's the thing. If none of us as human beings have omniscience and experience knowing all things, if not a single human being has this, 
how is it possible that any human, any one of us actually can know things to be certain? Now, we do, I believe, because we are made in the image of God, all of us do know things to be certainly true. But we have no way within our own subjective experience by denying the existence of God, we have no way of just justifying our knowledge that things are absolutely true and that there are absolutes and there are things that we have certainty about. Um, we cannot justify that from our own subjectivism because we don't have omniscience. So there's only one option left is that there that omniscience does exist and that that particular omniscience has revealed things to us in such a way that we can know them to be certain, even though from our own subjectivism, we cannot justify that certainty. So when the atheist says, after he denies, when the atheist has said that he has no way of, he can't be certain about anything at all, and I say, well, um, that's a self-refuting statement. You're saying that you're certain about that, and you do have certain knowledge about many things that you know to be certain. The laws of logic, for example, uniformity in nature, morality and ethics, and we'll get into those arguments later. But you have certain knowledge of these things. You know them to be true. You know their truth value is absolute. But yet you cannot account for it within your own denial of God and from within your own subjectivism. So I will say that I can justify my uh, my knowledge of absolutes. I can justify my certainty because the one who does know all things, the one who um, does have all knowledge, has revealed things to me in such a way that I know it to be certain. Now, if the atheist says, no, 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 that's not possible, that can't happen, he has no leg to stand on in order to make that claim against us because he's just denied certainty. So if he can't have certainty about anything, how can he be certain that my certainty does not come from the one who knows all things and can provide the justification for me having certainty? Now, the atheist will often go and say, well, you know, uh, you know, that's just your subjective claim to certainty. You're just saying that you have certainty. You're just, you know, you're being arrogant and prideful that God has revealed to you, to you specifically, and that's how you have certainty about things. I don't have certainty about anything. No, the answer is, is he actually does have certainty about things. God has revealed it to him just as definitively and just as clearly as he has revealed it to me. And this is why we as presuppositionalists say that all men actually do know that God exists. Because to deny God leads to absurdity. It leads to self-refuting statements and leads to um, them claiming they can't know anything to be certain, but they have to live their life as if they do have absolute knowledge of things of certain things to be true, and they do have certainty about certain things. So the... Um, the atheist simply cannot uh, justify um, his attacks against God. Now let's uh, jump to another formulation of the tag argument, and this is uh, on the laws of logic. Now, uh, before we jump here into the argument, uh, let's just go ahead and jump into the laws of logic for just a little bit. The laws of logic, and uh, this would be the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction. Um, these are the three classical formalized laws of logic. Uh, it was Aristotle that originally laid them out in this way. Um, now, Aristotle did not establish the laws of logic. He simply identified and recognized them. All human beings since creation have used the laws of logic. Aristotle was one of the first ones to formalize them, at least as far as we know. Uh, they may have been formalized before, but um, all human beings prior to Aristotle still believed and held to the law of excluded middle, held to the law of identity, that uh, A is A and A is uh, not A. Um, 
uh, a, a is not, not A. Um, a is A. And also, something can either be A or not A, but there's no other option. This is the law of excluded middle. Uh, there's no other option other than being A or not A. There's only two options. Um, and then the law of non-contradiction, something cannot be both in the same time in the same place at the same time. Something cannot exist, have existence value, um, and not have existence value in the same time and in the same place. Um, so the laws of logic are abstractions. I can't, just as we talked about before when we talked about transcendentals, they're transcendental in nature, they're abstractions, they, they're, uh, they're conceptual in nature, they have truth value, we all acknowledge their truth value, but, they're, but we can't, I can't get a plate of logic out of my refrigerator. They don't, they don't exist, have existence as part of uh, the material uh, part of the universe. They don't extend into time and space. They don't, but they have truth value. They apply within time and space. So how is it that this um, immaterial, abstract, conceptual, um, and absolute uh, law that has truth value that we believe to be true, uh, but seemingly has no connection to the uh, natural universe actually exists? I mean, it has existence value, um, but yet we cannot account for it from a purely materialistic um, worldview uh, because they are immaterial in nature. They're also unchanging. They're immutable. They don't, they don't change over time. The laws of logic have always applied. Um, and so this is the laws of logic, and this is, this is what an atheist worldview must justify um, in order to um, even engage in rational debate and uh, discussions about anything whatsoever. They're going to need to justify these uh, from that particular perspective. So here is the tag argument for the laws of logic. And you'll notice it is formulated in exactly the same way the previous argument was formulated. The Christian God is necessary to justify the laws of logic. There are laws of logic... Therefore, God exists. Now, an attack against this could be against the major premise, the Christian God is necessary to justify the laws of logic. They could attack and they could say, the laws of logic are properties of the universe. Okay, my response to that would be, properties can be measured. How can you measure the laws of logic? Can the universe both exist and not exist at the same time? So we have two ways of uh, approaching this. So properties are something, properties of the universe can be measured. I can measure distance. I can measure time. I can measure um, the mass of an object. Um, I can count the amount of molecules in it. Um, there are the different properties, the, the attributes, the properties that make up things within the natural universe can all be measured. So if the laws of logic are properties of the universe, um, what are they properties of? Are they properties of space? Are they properties of time? Are they properties of matter? What exactly are they a property of? And if they are, how do I measure them? Um, because properties are measurable. Uh, they're not. So obviously they're, they're not properties of the universe. The other way to dispute this is, can the universe both exist and not exist at the same time? And if it cannot, this means the laws of logic transcend the universe. They're not contingent, they're not properties of the universe itself. They transcend it, uh, because the laws of logic actually apply to the universe's own existence and not existence. So they actually transcend the universe. Now, the second minor premise is there are laws of logic, okay? Well, the atheist could attack this and say, he could say that the laws of logic are not objective. They're just conventional. They're just, they're just adopted by certain societies. Uh, societies have come to, to accept the laws of logic as, as being true for that particular society or that group of people. They, they're just conventional, kind of like driving down the left side of the road or driving down the right side of the road. It's just a convention. You know, one country adopts one convention, another country adopts another convention. 
Well, the response to that would be, so different societies can adopt different laws of logic? So can a car both exist and not exist at the same time and in the same place within different societies? I mean, it's absolutely absurd to say that the laws of logic are conventions. Um, it's, it's an absolutely absurdity. They obviously are things that we recognize as people, and maybe uh, a society has formalized them and recognized them. And in the same way, you could say, for example, Einstein, he came to understanding and recognizing general relativity, how gravity and time and space worked and how time and space was bent. And that is what uh, how what explains gravity. Well, Einstein recognized and discovered this. Uh, it existed prior to Einstein. Um, the laws that govern the relativic, relativistic nature of time and space applied before Einstein existed, so he simply recognized them. So just because Aristotle formalized the laws of logic does not mean they did not exist prior to Aristotle. Um, before Aristotle, a rock could not both exist and not exist in the same time and the same place. Um, it could not both be at one place um, and then not be at there at the same time. So let's look at the um, next formulation of TAG, the Transcendental Argument for God, is objective laws of morality. Uh, the argument is formalized in this way. Once again, you'll see it's uh, taking on the same form. The Christian God is necessary to justify the objective laws of morality. Uh, premise two. There are objective laws of morality, therefore God exists. So the way to attack it is you can attack premise one. The Christian God is necessary to justify the laws of morality. An atheist may say morality is determined by society. The response to that is another atheist, atheist says that morality is subjective, not determined by society, but it's determined by his own desires. And so another atheist says that morality is subjective. Is he objectively wrong and your position is objectively true? And if there isn't an objective moral claim that says your position of societally determined morality is better and carries truth value that the subjective claim does not, if if there is no objective standard, then you're just as subjective as he is. If he is objectively wrong, where do you get that objective truth? Because you just denied objectivism. If he is not objectively wrong, then your morality is just as subjective as his. So the person who claims that society determines morality is being just as subjective as the atheist that says that uh, his own personal preferences determine morality. And that morality is completely relative and that it's just subjective to the individual. Um, so that there's no confusion here, I just want to make sure that the terms objective and subjective are explained um, and that you guys understand them. Objective means is that there is um, a law or rule or an ought, a thing that we ought to do that exists and transcends us as human beings. It exists outside of us. It's not dependent upon my mind. It's not dependent upon my brain, but it has truth value outside of my own existence. So in other words, let's say, let's take the moral um, claim that murder is wrong. In fact, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. So if that, if that claim that murder is wrong is dependent upon me as a human being, from my own subjective experience, then when I cease to exist, then that moral claim would have to go away. Or was murder wrong before I came into existence? Um, when, I, when I'm dead, is, is that still true? So obviously the moral claim that murder is wrong is something that transcends any human being. Because... Um, murder is wrong 
whether any particular human being is alive and in existence or not. Um, so it exists outside of any uh, other human being. So that's objectivism. Subjectivism means that it's just a personal thing. It's just uh, it just comes from uh, a human being as an individual. He makes a particular claim. For example, uh, I'll give you this uh, an example of subjectivism is I like Reese's peanut butter ice cream. Okay, well you might like uh, vanilla ice cream. Okay, that is your preference. That is your subjective uh, preference. My subjective preference is Reese's peanut butter ice cream. And uh, you can have your subjective preference and I can have mine. Well, moral claims are not like that. Um, ethics are not determined by personal preferences. Um, they are determined by an objective moral law giver. Uh, the second minor premise was there are objective laws of morality. Uh, the attack against this could be is morality is not objective, it's subjective. <laughs> the response to that, is it right then if I steal your car? Because if morality is completely subjective, then you can't object to um, anything anyone else does, like stealing or murder or lying um, or rape. You can't object to them because maybe within their moral um, position, their subjective morality, that particular action is absolutely fine. Who are you to impose your subjective personal morality upon somebody else? And so that particular objection falls flat on its face too. So therefore the conclusion still follows. God exists. Um, another one uh, to look at uh, with the transcendental argument for the existence of God is the uniformity in nature. Now, this is one, for some reason, some people uh, struggle with understanding. But what uniformity in nature simply is, is that the laws of science, the laws of nature that, that govern the way the universe functions, let's take gravity, for example. Um, let's take um, the laws of thermodynamics, like for the second law example. Um, also... Um, the laws, uh, like the first law of thermodynamics of uh, um, zero uh, temperature, and the the different uh, the different laws that govern the way the law of causality, um, all the laws that we as scient or scientists simply have to assume in order to be able to do science. Uh, scientists and all human beings assume that the laws of nature will continue in the next moment the way they have in the past. So, um, as a human being, when I get up in the morning, I don't, I am assuming that gravity is going to continue holding my feet to the ground. I'm going to assume that the laws of physics still apply, and when I squeeze the uh, toothpaste tube, that toothpaste will come out as it did in the past if there's actually toothpaste in the tube um, that the laws of physics that govern the way the universe functions and the way the laws of nature uh, function in a regular way will continue that way now from a position that there is no God there is no way to justify that nature will continue forward in a uniform way now the Bible actually tells us in Genesis 8, 6 and in multiple places that God will continue to uphold the universe in a uniform and consistent way until the end. And so I, as a Christian, can justify my belief that nature will be uniform. But from an atheistic perspective, from the position of the, the Christian God does not exist, I don't have any justification uh, for why I expect nature to remain uniform. Uh, the only way that I can justify that is uh, by uh, begging the question and simply assuming it to be true. And so the argument is formulated in this way, and you'll notice it's formulated exactly in the same way all the other arguments are, but the Christian God is necessary to justify uniformity in nature. Nature is uniform, 
Therefore, God exists. Now, once again, premise one could be attacked. The attack could be we know nature is uniform because it has always been that way. Well, the response to that is you're begging the question. You're assuming the uniformity of nature to be true. Uniformity of nature means that, once again, that the laws of nature will continue in the future the way they have in the past. The reason the person is begging the question by saying, uh, we know nature is uniform because it has always been that way in the past, is that's not my question. I'm not asking how it has been in the past. I'm asking you to justify your confidence why it will be uniform in the future. So the atheist is actually not even answering the question when he's questioned on uniformity of nature. He is begging the question. And this was something that even David Hume, an atheist, recognized. That from his perspective, he didn't think that there was any possible way for nature, uh, the uniformity of nature, to be justified uh, from within an atheistic perspective. He didn't see a way for that to be possible. That is possible from within a Christian theistic worldview. Now, the second pre uh, premise, uh, nature is uniform. Uh, they could attack it, I guess, and say nature is not uniform. It's, in fact, uh, an absurd uh, response to say nature is not uniform because the person making the attack has to be trusting in that very moment that nature is actually uniform. Uh, to say that nature is not uniform is means that you could not even do science. Science is possible because of the assumption that nature is uniform. When a scientist performs different lab experience and science experiments, he expects in the exact same conditions to, to produce the exact same result. He doesn't expect to get different results because he's actually trusting in uh, nature being uniform. Um, when uh, a uh, prosecuting attorney in, the, in a court of law presents, let's say, uh, ballistic scientific information uh, to prove that um, the uh, defendant's gun was actually used in the particular crime that he's being prosecuted for, uh, the jury, the, def the defense attorney doesn't challenge the prosecutor by saying, well, maybe the laws that govern how uh, ballistics work changed since the last time <laughs> uh, ha have have changed since uh, that that bullet was fired. And so it doesn't it it uh, it doesn't apply your your information from the lab um, doesn't apply in this particular case because maybe the laws of physics have changed. No, everyone trusts this implicitly every day. We could not even function within God's world without trusting and having confidence that nature is uniform. Uh, we could also formulate the tag argument uh, with, uh, with reason, our ability to reason. Uh, the Christian God is necessary to justify the ability to reason. People have the ability to reason, therefore, God exists. Um, an attack could be against premise one, the Christian God is necessary to justify the ability to reason. I know my reasoning works because it has always worked for me in the past. Okay, well, here's the response to that. Once again, you're begging the question. You are assuming the validity of your reasoning because you have to use your reasoning to evaluate whether it has worked for you in the past. So it's circular. What you're doing is you're validating your reasoning with your reasoning. Um, you're not providing a justification. A circular argument is not a justification. Uh, you can prove absolutely anything you want with a circular argument. Um, so it does not provide a rational response for how we have the ability to reason. Uh, you could attack... Um, people have the ability to reason, you could say people do not have the ability to reason. Um, the, that particular answer would be absolutely absurd. How did you reason to that conclusion? Um, it's absolutely irrational to say that we don't have the ability to reason because that in itself would have had to been a conclusion that was uh, achieved by using reasoning. So other different types of transcendentals 
that uh, we can plug into this particular transcendental argument is love, personhood, uh, communication, sentience, our ability to experience things and have emotions, um, justice, consciousness. All these are different types of transcend have transcendental aspects to them that can be part of the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And what you'll come to begin to understand as you start looking more into the transcendental argument for the existence of God is you will start seeing that many of the things like love, for example, is only justified from within the triune God of Scripture. The triune nature of God is actually required in order to justify things like communication and love. Because if the God that justifies reality is unipersonal, he's not tripersonal in nature, then how does things like love and our ability to communicate, how can we justify these things within a unipersonal God who doesn't have any ability from eternity itself to uh, express love and to communicate. So our ability to communicate, our ability to love, is justified within the triune nature of the God of the Bible himself. Um, another way that we can look at um, the transcendental argument for the existence of God is we can, once, once we've looked at the other uh, formulations and once you've justified and made it clear that transcendentals cannot be justified outside of the Christian God, then you can plug this into a disjunctive syllogism. Uh, disjunctive syllogism is a form of reasoning in which one of the two propositions must be true. If one of the propositions is proved invalid, the other by necessity must be true. So this is usually an, um, uh, an either-or type proposition. So either P or Q. Not P. Therefore, Q is the formulation of this. So I'll give an example. It is either red or blue. It is not blue. Therefore, it is red. So this is a form of a disjunctive syllogism. So using a disjunctive syllogism with the transcendental argument is either the Christian God exists or he does not exist. So those are the two options. And the law of excluded middle says that once again, you can either have A or not A. There is no other option. There is no middle option. So either the Christian God exists or he does not exist. Okay? The Christian God not existing does not account for all the transcendentals we just went through that everybody believes to be true. They believe to be absolute. They, they know them to be true, but they cannot account for them outside of the truth value that the Christian God exists. So if... Um, a prem, uh, the first uh, argument here, either the Christian God exists or does not exist, if the does not exist is invalidated by the existence of transcendentals and their truth value and their absoluteness, then therefore the Christian God has to exist because the not existence of him um, does not lead to any sort of justification for any of these things. Uh, it does not justify our, our reality, our existence, it doesn't justify any transcendentals at all. So therefore, the Christian God, by necessity, absolutely, with certainty, has to exist. And this is also consistent with what the Bible itself says about God. The Bible itself does not say that we, um, we probably think that God exists. No, the Bible says we all clearly know that God exists. It's not a, it's not a probabilistic question. It is not a question of... Uh, it's not something that we are uncertain about. In, Reve uh, in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 down to 22, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, 
they became fools. So after reading Romans 1, 18 through 22, we cannot say that the Bible teaches that man doesn't have certainty that God exists. It says here that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. In fact, it's so clear that Romans 1, 18 through 22 says they are without excuse. They have no excuse for their rebellion against God. Um, God has sufficiently revealed himself enough specifically for their condemnation. Um, and so all men know that God exists, and they willfully and willingly rebel against God. And to deny the existence of God is the utmost foolishness. In Psalm 14.1, in fact, it says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, this is not making fun of the person who denies the existence of God. It's a moral indictment against him because he knows that God exists. And in fact, he lives his life as if transcendentals are true and he cannot justify them outside of the existence of God. He knows things to be true. He has certain knowledge of them. He knows them to be absolutely true with the same certainty we as Christians do. But yet he's saying that God does not exist and it's his only justification for actually even knowing these things. And so whenever you're speaking with an atheist, he's constantly revealing that he actually does know God exists whenever he makes any claims of knowing anything to be true, whenever he claims to be certain about anything, whenever he says that we ought to act in a certain way, he is revealing once again that he actually does know that God exists. So that is the end of that presentation. Let's flip the screen back here. And uh, that is uh, my short presentation on the transcendental argument. Hopefully that was uh, helpful for you if you've been struggling with that a little bit to help you maybe understand that a little bit more clearly. Um, another thing that I do want to show you is, um, is when presuppositional apologetics and the truth of the Word of God who says that all men actually know that God exists and they are without excuse, when that truth is denied and we use a form of an apologetic that, that actually uh, says that, um, you know, puts the unbeliever in a place of neutrality where they might not actually know that God exists and I need to provide him evidence to demonstrate that, instead of using the presuppositional approach which holds his feet to the fire that says that he knows that God exists, he knows it with certainty, and he keeps using transcendentals, which are only justified by the transcendental God of Scripture. And so therefore, he knows this. And so by putting the unbeliever in a position where he can judge the existence of God based upon different evidential arguments that you can give him, and he can judge that instead of holding his feet to the fire and telling him that he is without excuse, and... That is the way that the transcendental argument should be used. Or even if we do use, I'm not opposed, in fact, to using evidence in any way at all. But it needs to be used in such a way so that the, believers, the unbelievers' feet are held to the fire. And it's demonstrated to them that they are without excuse for their rebellion against God because their knowledge of God is just as certain as my knowledge as a Christian. Uh, their knowledge is just as certain of God. And so, therefore, they do know that God exists. And so there is an, there's some alternate and very popular forms of apologetics out there that, um, that deal on the existence of God based upon evidences outside of Scripture. And the authority and the truth of Scripture is not presupposed and stood on and held to. Um, and the unbeliever's worldview is challenged from the position that he is not standing on the Word of God and hold his feet to the fire um, and so this is evidential type of apologetics. And so I want to actually show you a video by, um, this is a debate between um, a famous atheist, or um, I don't know if he necessarily calls himself an atheist, but uh, he definitely has an atheistic worldview. He definitely denies that it's uh, likely not probable that God exists. And this is uh, Lawrence Krauss, he's a physicist, 
uh, versus uh, a professing Christian by the name of William Lane Craig. Now, William Lane Craig uses a lot of arguments, um, evidential-based arguments, um, where he deals with the probabilistic nature of God's existence and that God most probably does exist instead of the certainty that Scripture tells us that all men know that God exists. And so I want you to see an example of what happens when people uh, do not have an apologetic that is grounded in the Word of God and that um, makes arguments uh, that source and come from the foundation of the Word of God being true. And so I have this video here. I'm going to transition here to the screen uh, so you can see this. This is, uh, if you want to find this, you can find this on YouTube. Um, it is uh, Life, the Universe, and Nothing. Why is there something rather than nothing is the title of the video. It is uh, uh, Lawrence Krauss versus William Lane Craig. And this is at about uh, one hour, uh, two minutes, and 30 seconds into the video is where I'm going to start playing it. So if you want to go ahead and find that particular video and um, watch it, I wouldn't, if I were you, I mean, you can watch the entire debate if you want to. I just don't think it's a, a good example of, uh, of a Christian actually truly standing upon the objective truth of the Word of God and making his arguments from that particular foundation and presupposition. Um, William Lane Craig does not do that. And so I would... You know, not encourage you to watch this debate to look for a source of uh, good uh, Christian apologetics. Um, you could look at it as a way of not doing apologetics if you want to watch it. Uh, no problem. Uh, I've, I've watched actually watched uh, a lot of William Lane Craig's debates in the past, but um, I do not believe that he uses a biblical type of an apologetic. And I think that is exemplified here within this portion of the video, and I want you guys to see this here. So uh, let's um, turn the volume up just a little bit here, um, and we'll start playing this, and we'll uh, critique it here a little bit at the end. Um, but uh, now you confuse me. But the, the point is that that we don't we don't claim to know everything. That's that's the whole point. We don't claim certainty, and that's great. Well, do you claim certainty? No, no. I, is... I, I don't get that. No, are you certain that God exists? No. Good. I mean, this is so. Wow. Now, this is a Christian who says he has a personal relationship with God. And when asked by the atheist, are you certain that God exists? His answer is no. How is that possible? If, if somebody came to me and said, um, you know, Jason, how long have you been married? Uh, well, I've been married over six years. Okay. Do you have a relationship with your wife? Well, yeah, obviously, she's my wife. Well, are you certain of her existence? Well, absolutely. I have a relationship with her. I know that she exists. Um, she's not a figment of my imagination. Um, she's not, I don't have a, prob a relation with a, prob uh, a probability. I have a relationship with a person. And so, therefore, in your apologetic methodology, to say that you're not certain that God exists, when the Bible itself tells you that God most certainly exists and that every human being knows it with certainty. In fact, every human being is so certain of God's existence that God says they're without excuse on Judgment Day. And then to actually say in an apologetic situation, when asked, are you certain that God exists, to actually say no. And notice the atheist's response. Good. That is exactly what the atheist wants to hear. He's it's done at that point. The atheist is now affirmed in his position of denying God's existence in his rebellion against God. He's been affirmed in that position by somebody who claims the name of Christ. Um, so if you guys want to check that out, that is uh, that is William Lane Craig versus Lawrence Krauss. Uh, I would encourage you to not uh, <laughs> um, engage in apologetics that way. So. Um, I hope uh, that this um, this was useful to you. I hope that uh, it maybe helped you understand uh, the presuppositional approach and the transcendental argument for the existence of God a little better um, by formulating it um, in that way. And um, if you have any questions, go ahead and email me and uh, let me know. Join us uh, next week for um, 
uh, our next episode. Uh, once again, I'm not sure exactly what topic we're going to cover next week, but uh, hope you join us then, and God bless. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom?